This is episode number 391 with Reid Hoffman of The Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder Fam, we've spoken to hundreds of guests over the years, and this has got to be up there with one of our top interviews. Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, partner of Greylock, host of the Masters of Scale podcast. He's here today to tell you some truly incredible stories and share some insights that you really don't want to miss when it comes to building like businesses that are massive. Um, So if you're ready to hear from one of the greatest minds in modern business, please strap in. Welcome, Reid Hoffman. The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? (laughs) Well, since I do all kinds of varied work, everything from podcasting to book writing to investing, to, uh, you know, having co-founded companies, a bunch of other things, you know, it's, it's kind of a long tangled uh, web, but fundamentally what it came down to was the recognition that technology is one of the things that helps us scale what is good for individuals and humanity. And I, I, I think I came to that realization through uh, being an undergraduate at Stanford and then going and being a uh, graduate student in philosophy and thinking, how can I participate? And and how can I do something? And scale wasn't so central to my mind then, but like like large scale impact uh, was kind of, I think, the way I was thinking about it. And I was like, well, actually, in fact, technology is something that could be something we all use, something that helps all of us um, navigate. And so I should go work on that. And that's, that's a set of path that led from a job at Apple to today investing at Greylock. Yeah, amazing. Um, so you also co-founded LinkedIn. You've been part of the PayPal Mafia. You've done some incredible things, incredible career. Um, I'd love to kind of delve uh, to the early days. Age 12, you kind of technically started your career as an accomplished tabletop gamer. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to kind of hear from you, like, what what has that, like, taught you? And, and has gaming really taught you to be a successful business person? Um, gaming did. Um, so, um, you know, I guess like, you know, many people, or at least many driven people, I kind of obsessive. And so I was really obsessed about fantasy role-playing games. Uh, most people understand that as Dungeons and Dragons, although the variant that I was doing was called RuneQuest. And um, I think the thing that I, I liked about it was this whole notion of kind of creating the world, you know, think of it as a, the very earliest versions of, of being in a participatory metaverse. Um, and, and you're kind of constructing that and kind of thinking about how do you, how do you play together? How do you solve problems? You go on a mission, you know, like a, a raid of a dungeon and so forth. And then eventually I really got into board games and the board games, which, um, are generally, you know, used to be known as Avalon Hill games, strategy games are actually fundamentally what taught me strategy. Cause it taught me, you know, how you orchestrate 
a set of different composition of tactics. Uh, you build towards a, an ultimate goal. Uh, you're flexible in what your strategies are. You have to be um, you have to be adaptive to be either you know misfortune or or um, you know kind of other moves by other players um, and all that sort of thing. And that I think uh, was the thing that got me into you know kind of the 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 way that I think about the world. Like when, frequently when I'm talking to entrepreneurs, the metaphor that I use to try to unpack a strategy is what's your theory of the game, right? So like, what game are you playing? What's your theory of the game? How do you win? You know, there's obviously OKRs and other kinds of things, but that sort of thing. And that all I think came from my 12 year old self who was so obsessive about games. Mm, fascinating. Key, keyword obsession, uh, keyword obsession. And you also said you worked at Apple uh, back in the nineties can you talk to us kind of any memorable experiences of that time? So I've always been an Apple fanboy. Uh, I learned to program in part on an Apple IIe. Uh, I don't know, many of your viewers and listeners may not even know what that is. And so it's so ancient. And the, um, and so, but you know, my very first personal computer was a Macintosh. And so when I got to Apple, I was, I was really, I was really, um, excited about that. Now it was the Apple dark ages it was just a few years before Steve Jobs returned to try to save the company. And so they didn't really, they were very like listless. They didn't really have a good strategy and everything else, but they did have still a commitment to really great user interface design, the kind of the, the kind of Apple ethos. Uh, and so that was part of the reason why, like when I came back from Oxford and I was looking around for a job, when I had that prospect at Apple, I jumped at it. Um, because of those old senses. Plus, you know, part of what we do with technology is we try to make a, a better world and a better world for people. Uh, and so, you know, kind of a, a user experience design job was my very first job post-college. Interesting. So um, you've done a lot of things. I'm curious around kind of how do you find balance? Like uh, what, 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 is, what, is, what does your typical day look like right now for Reid Hoffman? So um, I tend to think that with intense jobs, balance is impossible. Um, and I tend to think if you're thinking about entrepreneurship or trying to achieve something heroic, uh, balance is a mistaken goal. Um, and so I don't, uh, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, try to maintain like a good, like running a marathon, you know, kind of uh, good, uh, get good sleep at night, have good decisioning capabilities and so forth. But you really, when you're going to kind of do something that that is the heroic nature of, of an entrepreneurial or creation of a major, major project, you're, 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 you're not literally, you're, you're not only burning the candle from both ends, you're tossing the entire candle into the fire because you're all in, you're committed to doing it. And so, you know, my days are typically, you know, kind of wake up at 6.30, orient on the day by 7, 7.30 with, you know, shower and all the rest, you know, getting into stuff uh, usually because now I have you know, kind of tons of meetings with anything from portfolio companies, CEOs, you know, like um, Aurora or Joby or others to um, nonprofit work or advising, you know, governments um, or generating content like writing books uh, and that kind of thing. And so it's, it's, it's usually pretty full until about 10 p.m. Uh, that's the Monday through Friday. And there's also work on the weekends too, um, just not quite the 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, day yeah wow so are you still clocking in like 60 70 hour weeks you reckon yep easily yep okay and uh let's talk about masters of scale like so before the book you've got this incredible book coming out um like the work that you're doing there on that podcast is incredible and, and like the content amazing and i've just love to hear kind of like what inspired this project well to some degree, all of my business books, um, which are all my books so far, um, Startup Review, The Alliance, Blitzscaling, and now Masters of Scale, are all somewhat the world as I found it. Um, because, you know, I was originally thinking I was going to be an academic. That's the reason I was studying philosophy at Oxford. And then I kind of said, no, 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 the way to have scale impact was to be a, a, a kind of a creator of software technology. And then as I went through that, being an entrepreneur doing it. So you can try to create... The, the, the software technology that simply doesn't exist yet uh, that helps us navigate our, our world better. And um, part of the, the, the thing that kind of uh, got me into 
you know, doing Master to Scale, the podcast and the book particularly, was that the usual kind of misconception on entrepreneurship is you have this eureka moment, aha, I've got an idea. You kind of figure out your product market fit and then it's all execution. And most things actually fail to get to scale because actually, in fact, uh, it's a constant cycle of invention and reinvention by which you're getting to scale because your go-to-market may have to change or evolve. Even your business model may have to change or evolve. Certainly the way that you're running your company in terms of, you know, you just start out with a little small group of doers and then you end up with manager doers and then managers and then executives and so forth. And, and, and you're now going from single threaded to multi-threaded and, and all of these other things that, that are part of the journey to scale are, um, are essential part of the, of the high impact entrepreneurship. And when I was looking around Silicon Valley and saying, well, what's the way that I can maximally help both here in Silicon Valley and the world and why do so many interesting projects and companies come out of Silicon Valley? It's like, well, it's because the network teaches this kind of learning at scale. And it isn't obviously only Silicon Valley because it, you know, as the listeners of our podcast will know, we, we interview people from around the world and, and try to get lessons from it. But there is this kind of notion of that's, that scale is how you have the big impact and how do you get there and how do you get there quickly? How do you get there? How do you maximize your chances? How do you maximize the chance of a, of, a, of a successful scaling, a successful positive impact on the world? And that was the, the thing. And, and so it was like, all right, well, let's start talking to a whole bunch of people because that's how I learn um, and go out and ask them about like what have their paths been. Yeah, I see. And the book is based on the hundred, you know, over the hundred interviews you've conducted. Um, and, you know, these were some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation. I'm curious, a lot that have actually been on our show as well, right? Like we actually have many, many similar guests. Uh, you got, yeah, you, you do incredible work. So I'm curious, kind of like, what is the one thing that you'd want people to take away from this book? Well, the key thing, both in the podcast and the book, is entrepreneurship is about constantly learning. Um, and not thinking you've learned it all already. Um, you know, our version of that in my first book was saying in permanent beta, like you are always in permanent beta from the startup of you. And I think that's true for entrepreneurs themselves and for their projects. And so if there's one thing that kind of goes through, like to some degree, all of the chapters in the book uh, the, the, and, and many of the podcast episodes is that constantly be learning and always be seeking to learn what you're doing. And that's part of the reason why we did a book in addition to the podcast, because a book gives you a much more compacted, like a, a podcast, as you know, is this kind of linear thread, sometimes with these very engaging stories, a couple of key tactics or learnings and experiences, but as opposed to like, well, here's how these seven different stories link together in this common theme. And here's how a book, like if it was two of us or 20 of us, sitting around talking about it, we can read the book and we can say, oh, look, on page 30, I thought this was really interesting. And on page 40, I had this question. And on page 50, I have this challenge. And that gives you a different mode of learning. So I'd say it's that always be learning, um, you know, kind of for those fans of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, it's actually not always be closing. It's always be learning. Yeah, I love it. And kind of you, you in your networks and the interviews and the people that you meet, Kind of what is that one, if you could nail it down to kind of one commonality amongst successful founders, what would it be? Well, learning and a fast learning curve uh, is essential. People learn in different ways, so they don't all learn in the same way. Um, and then I would say the addition, since we just always talked about learning some there, is this balance of kind of grit and persistence, like because all entrepreneurship goes through valleys of the shadow. Why was this a good idea? You know, minefields where it seems like it's all going to fail together with um, kind of flexibility and learning and adjusting, pivoting. Uh, and if you bring these kind of yin and yang together in this kind of balance of like, I can see the future and I'm going to drive towards it together with, I'm going to adjust to the world. I'm going to adjust the market. I'm adjust to learnings, adjust to, to what do I see happening. Uh, then that, that cycle is really important and supports obviously the learning. Yeah. And I'm curious as well, kind of like that's the, 
you know, the positive and, and the common thread of people that are making it, when, when founders are trying to seek growth, what's a fundamental key common mistake that you see also? Well, there's a couple. Um, one of them tends to be the, well, I learned this already, and so um, I'm, I know it. And the thinking you know it is usually when you drive the bus over the cliff, uh, as opposed to looking at how, th- like, like uh, your new scale challenge may have changed the, the, the challenge you're at with the, with, the, with the company. Another one is, you know, kind of uh, not adjusting your talent. Uh, so you may have had some really great talent, but the but your talent need the your team needs to be refilled fielded. Uh, frequently, as you get to each new level of scale, uh, frequently up up to about half of your leaders and execs need to be uh, moved around in some way. New people moved in and hired uh, doesn't necessarily mean uh, uh, moved out of the company. Sometimes that's the case. But sometimes it's like, no, no, we need a new leader of sales at this level of scale. And we'll keep our old leader of sales who, who will like be the new and emerging markets or they or they leading the new product of sales, but the the the, the simple scaling engine will be a new one, for example. And so that um, sense of of it worked thus, what got you here won't get you there. And we need to be adjusting that. And in fact, you need to be adjusting it frequently before you've run in the landmine. That's part of the reason why it's good to have, um, to be a learner, to asking people, you know, network of, okay, what should I be anticipating? What's coming? Uh, getting the right board members and investors, you know, this kind of thing, because you're, you're, you're trying to say, you're trying to see, it isn't that you're going to avoid running over landmines, but you're trying to avoid running over the big ones that will really slow you down in advance, if at all possible. I see. And one thing you talk about in the book is something that's interesting is around keeping profits and values aligned. And I'd love to hear kind of from your perspective, like for businesses that may be seeking profit at all costs, um, what would you say to them? What are the long-term ramifications? Well, there are mercenary companies versus missionary companies. Generally speaking, missionary companies do a lot better than mercenary companies, especially in the long run. Um, not just obviously the market reaction and consumer reaction and society reaction and government reaction, but also of course, employees who feel proud of what they're doing, who wanna work there, who want to not just work there for as long as they're making you know, some, some real good money, but also like they're proud of it. So they tell their fan, friends and their family and so forth. So, so it's much, much better to be missionary uh, about what you're doing. And it also tends to correlate with long-term success versus kind of take the money and run. Um, and and so those are kind of like all the entrepreneurs I work with tend to be, you know, uh, missionaries, mission alignment. Uh, you, you know, I don't t- tend to have to give them that speech. They tend to be, have that already, but then it's how do you do the mission? And then how do you balance it out? And, and what's your theory about, um, you know, when you should be investing in the long term and when you should be trying to make good, you know, operating margins this this month, this quarter. And in you know, how are you reinvesting in the business in interesting ways? And so those are the kinds of things. Now, by the way, sometimes, you know, when a person just saying, hey, look, I'm just making money and, you know, I'm doing something that is, you know, people have, tend to like to come to my diner and I'm just running the diner to make money. That's still creating jobs, still has customer service. So, you know, sometimes people, you know, the, the everyday business person who's just doing it to make a buck gets a little bit of a bad rap. And actually, in fact, that's that's still that's still value to society. It's much better when it's like the no, no, this product is fundamental to how we have a better society. But it's a you know, so it's a spectrum there, but even there is not, you know, not such a bad thing. Yeah, I see. And um when it comes to the book, you literally open with uh, getting to know. Um, so I'd love to know kind of what's been the biggest no that you've had to encounter or the most frustrating no, and how did you deal with it? Well, um, I've gotten no's, and entrepreneurs have to do this all the time. Uh, in my very first startup, Social Net, uh, literally um, every single VC we pitched until the very last one said no, right? We were literally about to give up the effort until the last one said yes. Um, 
And actually, to some degree, you know, even though there was a huge amount of good learning experience, um, the fact the last one said yes, but said yes, but change your business model to X. And 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 we weren't really that convinced of, convinced of the new business model. Maybe we should have said no. Um, you know, it's kind of part of the the it did, didn't work. Um, and that's kind of like don't don't do what your VCs say in capital. Have you have your your kind of strategy? Uh, and so uh, I'd say probably the most frustrating nose, um, and I won't perhaps call out you know names, but is when you when you find just the the great person that you'd want to be going on this journey with, and you're trying to recruit them to be your co-founder, your you know head of a product, your the CEO of this company, that kind of stuff, and they don't get there, and you're like, you know that there's a great fit, um, and that's probably the most frustrating no because you you both a you're missing out on that delight and joy of going on this work journey with them, but b it kind of feels like a personal favor failure because you haven't shown them why this is the awesome thing that's that's changing in the world. Now, of course, they have their own interests and it may not align, but that's those are probably the most frustrating those for me. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'm sure it's hard to choose uh, because you've had so many incredible conversations, uh, you know, putting together this book, but also off the back of the podcast. If you could choose one, what would be one that you're most particularly fond of? <laughs> These are the kinds of questions that is, uh, you know, which of your children are smartest or are or most charming, et cetera. Um, and you know, we do a we do a we put a lot of energy into uh, selecting our podcasts. Um, the vast majority are outbound. Because uh, we're out researching, who do we think are the right people? I'm sure you're doing something uh, similar, and but I think that the you know like a smattering of surprises. So we say personal surprises for me. You know, I thought the Tyra Banks episode was uh, was kind of instructive. That her whole approach to everything in her career, from supermodeling to to business creation, actually deeply embodied the entrepreneurial mindset. The Thinking about, you know, kind of what are your customers looking for? How do you A/B test it? How do you drive it? And you know, I didn't imagine that a supermodel career, let alone the most successful supermodel in history, and had approached that that way. I just thought it was because of you know fashion choices and natural beauty and that kind of thing. Um, to um, you know, kind of like Franklin Leonard, um, where you know, kind of with the blacklist in Hollywood of that systems approaches aren't just things for consumer internet companies and and technology companies and you know large scale companies but also can be applied to you know interesting forms of content creation uh, within ecosystems that are even as relationship oriented as hollywood um you know to um you know kind of like for example personal learning moments was uh, you know part of what you know kind of um you know everything from you know, Ariana Huffington's, you know, kind of like, you know, how do you keep the whole team in, in mental health? Um, anyway, it just, it's a whole, it's a whole stack of each one. We kind of hone that to the entrepreneurial mindset lesson. And, and I try to, as much as possible, only talk to people where I will learn something too, because that obviously the energy and the joy of that will then uh, kind of, I think, play through the speakers and and be that, you know, the entrepreneurial journey can so frequently be kind of, um, you know, lonely or valley of the shadow moments that have the energy of that uh, be present with you. Uh, and we try to do, of course, the same thing in the book, although it's a little harder. You try to do the writing in the right way, but obviously, the as you know, the speaking word, the tactile human presence is very helpful in that vector as well. Mm, yeah, no, I can, um, I can really relate there. And and also just around that genuine curiosity, like when the when the question when you're asking the questions, and I'm sure you, you guys go hard on the pre-production as we do, um, you kind of have that kind of you got to follow your gut and kind of go, oh, I want to explore that more, and yeah. But there's so many, right? It's hard to choose. <laughs> yes, exactly. Although um, you know, it's 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 the the greatness is because. This look, the entrepreneurship is a central way about how the future world is created. 
like, you know, uh, we're in this kind of constant revolutionary cycle in technology and businesses and society, which means you have to be uh, reinventing and renovating and rebuilding and inventing new institutions, new technologies. And, uh, you know, obviously a business is a very central part of that, but that journey is part of how the future is created, right? We create the future we live in. And, uh, and that, I think that's one of the, the joys of, of doing this kind of content work, which, you know, for me is, 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 is a, is a, is, is a version of philanthropy. Obviously my economics come from starting businesses and, and, and investing, but the sharing the lessons and the stories and the learnings is something to try to make society better. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. So in the spirit of kind of surprising truths, uh, what's one thing that would surprise people about working alongside Elon Musk? <laughs> um, well, Elon's a very public personality, um, so maybe people wouldn't be as surprised by many things. I guess the thing that um, perhaps is undercommented about Elon's superpowers is that he is an amazing recruiter of talent. Um, and part of that comes from the fact he has this, you know, huge vision. He is really driven by that kind of heroic scale of like, how do you solve this big problem? So for example, you know, he's doing SpaceX. He really is thinking in terms of how do we make human beings a multi-planetary species on this very long time frame, and and what are the things that could be essential moves to be made now in order to do that? And as such, that kind of that energy and that you know plays into his recruiting. And he's also very good at identifying like very smart, very driven talent um, for making that happen. And I think that's part of you know, people always think, oh, visionary, you know, rocket science or, or the coming of electric cars, which of course are visionary and amazing, but it's the talent recruiting of amazing teams at scale. That's part of what makes uh, Elon such an iconic and successful entrepreneur. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing. Um, so kind of on that kind of note, uh, I'd love to just touch on your PayPal journey a little bit, if that's okay. Um you know, there's this kind of thing that people talk about, the PayPal mafia, which uh, you, you were a part of, where, uh, you know, so many successful founders of many other extremely large technology companies have come from that kind of founding early stage team of, of PayPal. Did you know at the time when you were there in, you know, working on PayPal that you were amongst all these incredibly successful like soon to be or, or future su super successful founders that like have changed the world as we know it um no what i did know was it was a bunch of people with a very intense learning curve who were running at creating the future really fast and you know kind of throwing the entire candle in the fire you know whether it was elon or peter or max or a bunch of other folks um, you know, Jeremy Stoppelman, uh, you know, Chad and Steve, a whole set of these folks. Um, now, I think part of what made the PayPal Mafia kind of extra epic in this was, you know, during, it, during that year, PayPal was one of the only two technology companies that went public. 
and then got bought by eBay. So all of a sudden you had a bunch of these uh, technology inventors and everything else there with some money in their pocket from having been successful with a desire to still build some amazing things. And so it was kind of a little Cambrian explosion as everyone went off to do the thing that um, they thought would be the kind of next most amazing thing to do. And, uh, and so we quickly recognized that we had what I think of as the PayPal network, but of course is much more fun to refer to as the PayPal mafia. Uh, we quickly realized that was there and we were collaborating with and helping each other and saying, oh, if you're trying to do that, you should talk to so-and-so and this would be a good size for financing or this is a good way to figure out the modern consumer internet go-to-market, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we were all, you know, kind of, a, you know, uh, collaborating in this, in, this, in this broad and also sometimes, you know, closely dense network. And we knew that we were around a bunch of people who are really going to like jump off a cliff and assemble an airplane on the way down the way that I refer to entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurial journey. But no, during the time we didn't know we had the Cambrian explosion waiting to happen. I really resonate with your quote. Um, you've got a few quite, you've got a couple of famous quotes as well. Cause uh, you know, if you're not embarrassed of the first version of your product, you've launched too late. Yeah. Building on the way down. Yeah, I've I've used some of those to kind of remind me in my early days. Um, one thing I'd love to ask is kind of you've referred to that experience at PayPal as traumatizing. Um, <laughs> can you tell us kind of what what you've learned from like what some like been a big takeaway from that experience? Uh, some parts of it are look usually when someone says learning experience. The good question is, well, what's the scars and how much blood did you leave on the floor, <laughs> right? You know, et cetera, because an intense learning experience uh, at fast moving with high stakes, because these stakes are, does the company blow up? Do people still have jobs? <laughs> you know, does, do you succeed or not? A lot of startups don't succeed. So you get a whole bunch of, like all of these startups have traumatic elements. That doesn't necessarily mean traumatic as in, you know, now you need to go to, PTSD counseling, right? But it does mean that it was like, oh my God, was it intense? Then, you know, I think a lot of it is we're a bunch of young folks who didn't understand uh, management very well and, you know, um, tended to uh, make a number of unforced errors that you'd have to correct from uh, fast. PayPal had a lot of, a, heart, a large number of near-death experiences. I mean, one of the things that I told Peter and I think it was August of 2000, I said, look, if we're spending money so fast that if we were, if you and I were standing on the roof of the building, throwing wads of $100 bills over the roof of the building, we'd spend money less fast, right? Doing that than the way we are now. Uh, and so, you know, you kind of, and we didn't have any business model. We had no revenue, right? It was like, ah, <laughs> right. And so, you know, all of that stuff is is a super intense experience. And it, I do think it's one of the things that, you know, people should understand about entrepreneurship is that it does involve those strains. It does involve uh, that kind of terror, you know, in, in the stuff that you're doing. Um, but of course, that's one of the reasons why it's hard. And when you succeed, it can also be heroic uh, because you've, you've gone through that. And so uh, both personal resilience and also, you know, how you, why you have co-founders and, and why you have, uh, you know, other uh, folks to try to navigate to having less uh, less traumatic experiences, I think is is all good. But it is it's an intense experience. So I'd like to kind of also touch on uh, your LinkedIn experience um, uh, and learnings. Can you talk to us, kind of, what did the early conversations look like, um, kind of building that platform? Like, how did that come to life? Well, um, so part of what happened okay, with the PayPal thing is we, we, we knew that August experience I referred to, that we had one chance of, of, of making PayPal work, otherwise we're going to blow up. So Peter and Max and I went to a, uh, you know, kind of an offsite. We talked to each other and we said, okay, what are our best alternative startup ideas? And LinkedIn was mine because it was my reflections on, what I really should have done when I did social net, uh, because you know part of the way that you can learn and you know that you're learning is you think, well, what would I have told my younger self before I started social net? 
what to do differently. You can't, you can't give yourself a, like, well, talk to so-and-so, don't talk to so-and-so, or recruit so-and-so, or don't bother recruiting so-and-so because they won't return your phone call. But like the principles, the skills, the processes, the mindset of how you would approach it. And so I'd thought through social net, LinkedIn was that. Um, it involved a kind of a viral go-to-market. It involved, uh, you know, kind of the fact that uh, life is both an individual and a team sport combined together. And you have to, you know, bring those two together. And that's part of how you have a network like LinkedIn. And so I pitched LinkedIn. Now we were successful at PayPal. So I was like, I didn't think it, think any more of it until we sold PayPal to eBay. And then I, I was like, well, I may just take a year off. And I said, well, wait a minute. The LinkedIn idea is still there. No one's really done it. And if I don't, if I take the year off, it'll probably go away. If I, if I do it now, then I have a chance at it. And that idea is still there. And so I, as opposed to taking a year off, by the way, you know, I took uh, three weeks, went down to Sydney and Gold Coast and other folks, you know, places around there. And, and you know, my, my, my one trip to Australia so far and kind of hung out with some friends and, and kind of, oh, okay, deep breathing, beautiful area. And then went, okay, now back to startup. Yeah, there you go. Okay. And what kind of in the early days were the challenges that kind of like kept you up at night bringing that platform together? Because it's no, it's not easy creating a social network. Like that's one of the hardest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the very first one, so we'd seen Friendster, which was a social uh, network and Friendster, just everyone was inviting each other because they were interesting and had this viral growth not having to do anything that the, the deep knowledge that goes into how you can possibly make viral growth work and continue to compound in the scale. I had that knowledge, but, um, but Friendster didn't in the early days and didn't really need it in order to, to drive it. And so it was like, oh, maybe we'll just launch LinkedIn and it will work. And we launched LinkedIn and crickets, you know, 2000 people signing up a week, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had to actually really do a lot of work specifically like inventing features like, you know, people you may know and borrowing the kind of notion of kind of how to address book uploads and invites work um, from our own innovation, from that technique, from what other people were doing. And we had to, to build all that in in order to make it in order to make it work. Because one of the challenges with LinkedIn, of course, on network property was, you know, our fundamental value was people in the network. So there was no value until those million people. So first person, no value, second person, no value, third person, no value. And so you're like, well, why are people going to invite people? And why, why is it going to get there? And then once, by the way, like the first million people are like, oh, no value. Then it's like, oh, well, come back and keep trying to use it. Because eventually you will, you will see that there's value uh, there. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of the, it was a multi-year you know, crossing the desert with very limited water kind of process. Um, but, you know, this is, you know, that per, apropos our earlier conversation, that combination of persistence and some flexibility of learning of which problems you need to solve. Like you need to solve the techniques of getting people uh, motivated to invite people, uh, even when there's currently no immediate value proposition for them uh, within, the, um, within the network. And so anyway, that would, those were some of the early, uh, is this going to work? Is this going to work? Is this going to work? Yeah, that's wild. Um, so we, we know we know the story, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, eventually the call comes from Microsoft and, uh, you know, you, you sell a company for $26 billion. How did you know your work was done? Actually, that wasn't the work is done. I'm on the Microsoft board. That was what's the best way to realize the mission, to realize the vision? And part of uh, LinkedIn has always been, how do you enable every individual professional with a very loose definition of professional so you can improve your skills at your job uh, to, to take as much uh, con uh, magnification, amplification control over their job and careers and economic opportunities as possible. And, you know, within LinkedIn, we had been doing that well within a job seeking and expertise seeking and recruiting and, and sales and other kinds of things, but we hadn't ever done anything also on kind of work and productivity about like making your work today 
more productive. And we thought, well, actually, in fact, we can put these two things together. One plus one might be ten, um, and 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 enable that. And you know, Satya Nadella is is a uh, visionary CEO, and we had months and months of conversations about, you know, what are the things where you could have one plus one be ten for both sides, and uh, and that's kind of where it ended up. It wasn't the work is done; it was the next phase of scale. A little bit like what got you here won't necessarily get you there was amazing and present. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so kind of would love to talk about your investing career as well because you've done notoriously well there. Um, I'm curious kind of what are some of the, I guess, consistently across all the companies that you've picked and, and done early stage, kind of what what's, what's the common theme or, or anything that you could share there? Well, there's a couple of themes. So one theme is, you know, as an inventor and as an entrepreneur, I still think about how do you redefine human society through the networks that we live in, right? LinkedIn's obviously part of that, um, uh, but also like, for example, Airbnb is another one or a convoy, which is, you know, kind of Uber for trucks, you know, is another one. So that's, that is a common theme. And when I think about how is this, uh, set, this, product or service or set of products and services, redefine that network in a way that's better for us as individuals and better for us as an industry and better for us as a society. That really is one major zone of investment and can arrange anything from, you know, the ones I just mentioned, also cryptocurrencies and other kinds of things. So that's one. Second thing that I've also um, been in is similarly, what are key technologies that will be redefining the industries of the future and therefore re redefining the scope of society and how can you do, you can make those technologies make a better, more human world. And what I mean is like our virtues are human, like we're, we're more compassionate, we're more wise, we're more uh, cognitively capable, et cetera. And so I've been doing a bunch of different AI investing and some of the intersection is AI with autonomous vehicles like Aurora, um, kind of doing that between network and these kind of technologies. And then the final thing is, um, is just kind of, and this is not as a commercial investor. Those first two are as investors where I, you know, am as knowledgeable as most in the world or more than, more than most about, you know, how do you invest a dollar and make more than a dollar? But also um, I've been doing some energy investing. And even though I don't understand anything about energy investing, other than, uh, you know, because of some good sense of entrepreneurs and strategic plans. And does that sound like a, like a good risk to take that make, make something happen? You know, it's part of my contribution to climate change or to combating climate change. Uh, because I actually think that the only way that the long term will be there is, uh, you know, cheap, uh, environmentally friendly energy, which, you know, everyone knows nuclear fusion. Nuclear fission is also part of it. And people are too underrating nuclear fission because they're worried about, they always think 70s technology or 80s technology versus 2020 technology, which is much better and much safer. And that's kind of our fallback and is going to be critical to counteracting uh, climate change. And uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the way I do, you know, teach your own skills, my skills. That's where I try to make some positive contributions. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so you've had, uh, quite a few successful exits from your portfolio. Um, I'm curious as well, kind of how hands-on are you as, as an investor and, and kind of like, how do you balance the relationship with, with the founders? Well, you do have a fundamental relation, uh, responsibility as a board member, uh, as responsibility to all shareholders, including the founders to make sure that you're. Um, that the CEO and the management team are the right people doing it. That's kind of one of them, the foundational responsibilities. Now, in most private investing, especially early stage, if you think you've got the wrong CEO management team, you just made a drastic mistake as an investor. And because usually the answer is how do you improve them? How do you help them versus how do you change them? Because changing them is not likely to end up with a likely better result for shareholders and the company and society. Now, so that's fundamental. Um, but so then you get to what's the, one of the things I'm very explicit about 
uh, all my partnerships, including my partnerships with founders is, here's the roles that I'll play, here's the things I'll do, here's the things I'll help with, here's where I'll be on call, here's, you know, obviously you can call me about everything, you can ask me for anything for help, but here's the way that I'm gonna bring in some unique things to what you're trying to do. And that's part of like anything where you're kind of allying for this decade plus journey that you should be really explicit about. And so um, it's just like when I hired Jeff Wiener to be the CEO of LinkedIn, it's like, look, here's how we're going to play together. And here's what my expectations of you. And let's talk about your expectations of me. And one of the, the central mistakes that board members frequently make is they're not the CEO and they're not the manager of the CEO the same way an executive or a CEO's manager of executives or executives or managers of directors, et cetera. It's not, it's, 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 um, it's a different kind of relationship where the CEO um, is fundamentally making the hard calls and you're partnering with the CEO in doing so. And you're, and you're helping them not by being passive, not by being backseat. Sometimes you have to be really challenging. Like, you know, a number of times after a board meeting, I go, oh, well, we, need, we should talk. They say, look, I think you're mishandling this. I don't think you want to think of the strategy this way. I think you need to do this. But ultimately my job is to help the CEO see these things. And then the CEO makes the call. Uh, for what they're doing. And so understanding that that right balance and that right partnership is one of the things that's really key. And it's one of the reasons why I think um, uh, you can call any of the CEOs I've ever worked with. Um, and I think you'll get a very strong reference uh, on, on how you work with me um, because of that um, clarity and explicitness and an alignment in partnership. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, so look, a uh, couple of last questions and we'll work towards wrapping up. Um, you've invested in and mentored like some of the biggest, you know, tech founders or, or companies in the world. Um, do you have any kind of crazy stories you can share that just kind of make you laugh or, or if there was just one you could share with us? <laughs> um, well, okay, this, is, this has been reported but um, I did think it was, this was probably the craziest moment. So uh, during PayPal, uh, after the combination between PayPal and X.com, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel were, uh, Elon was driving his McLaren uh, to a meeting with um, Mike Moritz uh, of Sequoia on Sand Hill Road and somehow managed to go from a red light to accelerating in a way that he flipped the McLaren end over end on Sand Hill Road um, so that the car was completely totaled. And the driver who stopped to, to see if he could help told him, I almost didn't stop because I was certain you guys were dead, <laughs> right, with, with what I'd seen. And to this day, I don't really know how he managed to pull off a race car crash on Sand Hill Road. Right. But when he got the phone call of, uh, you know, uh, Peter and Elon are in the hospital uh, because of this, I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? They're like, oh, no, they're just checking out whiplash. They'll be out. I'm like, checking out whiplash? What happened? And I got the description, like, they survived? That's great. Uh, but but it was um, it was probably the craziest moment that I've ever personally, you know, touched. Yeah, wow. That's a good one. Awesome. So, look, uh, we're going to do something called the hot seat round, um, okay. 30 second rapid fire. So, what advice would you give to any young entrepreneur seeking investment? And, you know, what's the one thing they need to get right? Make sure you're building your network because your network will actually, in fact, give you advice, but also connections to investment and do so in advance of seeking the investment. So, frequently, like, for example, Talk to VCs, yes, but talk to VCs before you're looking for money. Love it. Uh, if you could have dinner with one entrepreneur, dead or alive, who could it be and why? One entrepreneur, dead or alive. Um, well, of the alive ones, I more or less can have dinner with anyone that I that I want to, and I do have those dinners. So <laughs> that so dead is more interesting. Um, and you know, I'd say Steve Jobs, right? Um, he just you know so amazing on so many different fronts. Next level answer, I love it. Um, what's one area that gets you most excited about in 2021? 
Uh, I think that what we're seeing happening um, in terms of how artificial intelligence is going to help uh, bring a lot of industries to the next level. Um, and obviously that's a well-known thing, but I don't mean AI's buzzword. I specifically mean the large scale language models that will apply, because language is very fundamental to a lot of things human beings do, that will apply across a wide variety of things, including language, but for example, including coding. If you could go back in time and give your 10 year old self uh, one piece of advice, what would it be and why? I guess what I would say is uh, learn how to take smart risks and smart risks are a risk that you're taking that other people aren't, and it's smart because you realize that actually the, the potential trade-off for an amazing result is there that other people are shying away from doing that um, because they're not because the, the risk just looks like too big of a risk for them. And that's kind of what a smart risk is. And you you most often achieve your most heroic outcomes by doing that kind of smart risk because people thought it wasn't possible to do. You realized it was realistically possible and then you execute it against it and so you start learning about risk you start learning about evaluating it you start learning about mitigating it you start looking about learning about how to take that risk smartly yeah wow that's really cool thank you for sharing well look uh we'll wrap there reed this is an incredible interview thank you so much for your time where's the best place people can find out about your new book uh so about the book mastersofscale.com uh which is obviously also where the podcast is um, and you can uh, find all kinds of useful things there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It was an incredible interview. Nathan, fun and a pleasure. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.